0: Hello and welcome to Looked Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when the theme from Radio Merseyside's Tune Tonic with Monty Lister started playing backwards and sounded pretty much the same as it did forwards. I'm Tim Worthington and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one else ever seems to is writer and broadcaster Bob Fisher. Bob! What are up to? Where can we find it? Oh,
1: well, right. oh, blimey, do you want a full list of my various nefarious activities? I guess my main thing at the moment is writing. So I'm writing for the Fortean Times. I do a column called The Haunted Generation that is looking at, at the various bits of music and art and literature being produced at the moment that are inspired by that curious feeling of disquiet and unsettlement that seemed to be a hallmark of the 1970s childhood. Oh, what else do I do? I write for electronic sound, Magazine. There is an accompanying blog, hauntedgeneration.co.uk. I can chuck that into the mix as well, if you like. And I should have been on stage with two travelling shows this autumn, one of which was about Last of the Summer Wine, the Summer Wino show, and the other one was with uh, the Scarred for Life guys. But well, obviously, neither of those are taking place, so at the moment I am sitting in a stiflingly hot spare room talking to you, and I'm delighted to be doing so.
0: Well, your first choice is pretty much the polar opposite of anything you'd ever write about <laughs> in any <laughs> of your true. columns. I like to be contrary. Let's just hear a clip that I can't even say it's vaguely related to these people. It's the only thing that would ever go near them with a barge pole. Plus a free
1: Maria calendar and pay spot the difference for ten thousand pounds cash, all in Sunday Magazine.
0: Okay, that was one of the famous new size, new shape, new look, news of the world jingles from the eighties. Bob. These sort of people were all over these sort of papers at the time, who are we talking about? Well,
1: I really wanted to talk about a breed of celebrity that I only knew about as a kid through reading copies of the Daily Mirror that came into the house. So these are people who really, as far as I was concerned, didn't exist outside of the pages of tabloid <laughs> newspapers. I guess the easiest way to do this. Can I can I give you an example of a couple of these?
0: By all means, because I've got some. Uh, right, spells.
1: brilliant. We can we can compare 1980s tabloid celebrities here. So the the first one that came to mind for me was a chap called Ralph Halpern. Who was, uh, you see, I always recall him being referred to in the papers as Burton's boss, Ralph Halpern, who was a rather sharp suited looking gent. And he was, shall we say, he was romantically linked by the tabloids to a page three model called Fiona Wright. So it's, it speaks volumes. The one bit of this story that I remember in vivid detail is the same thing sticking in your mind here, Tim. Is a regular tabloid obsession of the nineteen eighties, which was how many times people could have sex in a single night. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it did. It wasn't enough to know that somebody had had sex. We had to know how many times they'd done it in a single night. So Ralph Halpern, I have no idea whether this is true or not, but he was alleged to have done it. He did it, Tim.
0: Use the correct word,
1: bonked. Bonked, he did it, of course, yes. (laughs) Bonking Burton's boss, he would have been, I guess, wouldn't he? Um, He did it five times a night, apparently. This was the story. These figures just seem to go around all over the place and get attached to uh, different celebrities, and often quite unlikely celebrities. Because uh, can you think of another celebrity who was once rumoured to have done it a certain number of times a night? I had a really unlikely one in my head.
0: Oh, that was Countdown to Richard Whiteley, known as Twice Nightly. Bingo.
1: Absolutely on it's the money. It's really
0: something to post about,
1: da-da, is da-da, is da-da, <laughs> Yes, Twice Nightly Whiteley, to which uh, Richard Whiteley, fantastic responded to this in brilliant form as I recall by saying the truth was that he did it once yearly nearly which I always (laughs) loved Ralph Halpern, the brilliant thing about Ralph Halpern. Can't even remember, was that, was that the extent of the story? Was that he was alleged to have had a ding-dong with a page three girl called Fiona Wright? Was that it, essentially?
0: Pretty much. And that's more or less all that is said about him on this Wikipedia page <laughs> as well.
1: Because <laughs> he's still around, isn't he? He's still with us, yes! Ralph Halpern. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the other detail of the story that has stuck in my head for th- I mean, I can't tell you at any given moment where my house keys or my wallet or my phone are. And, uh, you know, as you're aware, I, or a book you were looking indeed, for, for just, this podcast. I've just spent ten <laughs> minutes trying to find a book that I had this afternoon that we're going to talk about a little later on. No idea about the location of any of these things, but I can tell you that it was alleged that Ralph Halpern's five times a night sex were fueled by his consumption of sunflower seeds, <laughs> which I mean, I no, they weren't. I've i looked at. Let's let's not cast any aspersions here, Tim. Have you ever eaten sunflower seeds? No, me neither, me neither. If I did, I can't imagine they would transform me from the shambling, overweight, pallid character that you would see before you into a five times a night sex machine. I think it would take a little bit more than a packet of sunflower seeds. That was mentioned as well. So this led me to thinking about all kinds of other people whose existence I was only really aware of through the pages of 1980s tabloids. Can I chuck bungalow Bill Wiggins into the mix at this bungalow point? Bungalow
0: Bill Wiggins? <laughs> bungalow? Yes, yeah. Apparently named after the Beatles song for no tangible
1: <laughs> I tried it. So this bungalow Bill Wiggins thing was that he was, he was the squeeze, he was the bow of Joan Collins.
0: Occasionally a toy boy. Oh, but was it a They t- couldn't always wing of it that way. Of course, he was
1: a toy boy. Absolutely, <laughs>
0: he was a bit old for one, so they couldn't. Always, <laughs> well, not, when they had no other way to describe him, they called him. A toy not
1: compared boy. to Joe Collins, he wasn't. Surely, I had no idea why he was known as Bungalow Bill. He was a property developer, wasn't he, Bungalow Bill Wiggins? So I assume it was something to do with that. I do remember some tabloid speculation, which say he's called Bungalow Bill because he didn't have very much up top. But like you, I see, I got the Beatles' White Album for Christmas in 1988, around the time, I think, that Bungalow Bill was in his pomp in the tabloid newspapers. So when I discovered there was a Beatles song called The Continuing Story of Bungalow Bill, my immediate reaction was that the song was about him and not the other way around. So I said, blimey, this bloke's been famous since 1968. He must be an extraordinary figure of a man. But he, so, you th- <laughs> so you think he got his nickname from the Beatles song?
0: I don't, Well, that's just what I always assume. Yeah but you know, I don't remember her ever going out with like Ian Revolution 9 <laughs> Smith or anything,
1: but... That would have been fantastic, wouldn't it? I wish I, I wish I knew more about John Collins' various squeezes over the years now and we could we could we could apply Beatles titles to all of them.
0: There was the carnival of light one that they would give us.
1: Yes. He's never been released. <laughs> He's still in a vault somewhere. So Bungalow Bill goes on the list. I was going to chuck in as well. Now, here's one. I don't even know this guy's surname. And there's a bit of me that doesn't ever want to know it. I don't want to look it up. I like the mystery and the enigma. But when Linda Lusardi was a regular Page 3 model, she had a a boyfriend who, and again, this is 35 years ago, but I distinctly remember he was a hunky plasterer called Terry.
0: Yes. It was always like a human touch thing about, you know, when they surveyed the Page 3 girls about, what their idea of paradise was, <laughs> you know, they'd all say, ooh, going to Bali on Concord or whatever," and then at the end there'd be Linda Lusardi going, going for a nice slap-up Chinese with plaster. Of Terry. <laughs> no,
1: whoa, whoa, whoa! Give the man his full title here, Tim. Hunky plasterer. Hunky, plaster hunky, plaster hunky plaster of Terry. Hunky plasterer. Terry. Now I think Terry was responsible for quite an extraordinary development in 1980s tabloid world. Again, open to correction on any of this stuff. Was Terry one of the first page seven? fellas that's f-e-double-l-a-s
0: have got no idea <laughs> <laughs> it was fellas absolutely though, it, it was yeah.
1: <laughs> well page three you had stunas s-t-u-double-n-a-s <laughs> and on page seven you had fellas it was uh, unthinkable that you would have an r in 1980s tabloid world so yeah terry was out there can i chuck a couple of other names at you here tim Helen Mellons Windsor.
0: Oh, she was royalty, wasn't she? <laughs> she was the daughter of the Duke of
1: Kent. She is 43rd in line to the throne. I know nothing at all else about Helen Mellons Windsor, apart from the fact that she was apparently nicknamed Mellons in the 1980s, which seems extraordinary with the benefit of 35 years of hindsight. But she was. Can I chuck in your direction? Tiggy Leg Burke. Another royal one. Wasn't she a nanny? She was. She was nanny to Prince William and Prince Harry. Here's one. Here's... See how you do with this. Fawn Hall.
0: That sounds like a stately home. (laughs) No, it's it's E.T., isn't
1: it? (laughs) E.T. Fawn Hall. Fawn Hall was former secretary to Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North and a notable figure in the Iran-Contra affair. I've got this straight from Wikipedia, but I remember her being something of a tabloid figure at the time as well. And the one that I love is a chap called... Max Quarterman. Max Quarterman was known in the tabloids of the 1980s. In fact, I think he might have gone a bit beyond that. I think I think we can go back to the 1970s with Max Quarterman. He was known as Super Hod. And his shtick, Max Quarterman's thang, was that he had basically become a millionaire by hard work. He was a hod carrier, super Hot, And he drove a Rolls-Royce. And, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure he can't genuinely have been a millionaire. If he was, he'd carried an awful lot of hods around. But the tabloids absolutely built him up. I guess he was almost shown as an example of kind of, like, this is the peak of Thatcherism if you work. 20 hours a day carrying a hod, you too can reach the pinnacle of life's achievements and you can have a fortune and you can drive a rolls-royce so i mean you know good luck to max quarterman obviously i think he's still out there somewhere as well he was the millionaire hod carrier these people kind of drift in and out of my consciousness every now and again and i, I to, uh, to be perfectly honest with you i couldn't picture any of them i couldn't tell you what any of them look like i just remember their names from tabloid newspapers of 35 years years ago. Say what you like about tabloid newspapers, I'm not a huge fan particularly, but uh, such is the power of the media, certainly back in the 1980s, that these characters have become maybe not quite integral parts of our popular culture, but they've certainly lodged in my head for far too long.
0: Well, I've got some theories on why they suddenly started going for these non-celebrity celebrities. Though, admittedly, some of them make some of the ones that we've got these days look, you
1: know. oh, <laughs> well, they're positively A-list compared to some of the celebrities we yeah. have these
0: days. But, I just want to mention a couple of my favorite favourites first before I go on to that theory which is first of all there was Felix Howard now do you remember who he was? Felix
1: Howard the name rings a bell go on.
0: He was the young boy who was in the video for Madonna's Open Your Heart. Oh wow and then yes. he briefly co-presented the Tube yes. and famously interviewed Paul McCartney who when he got really flustered interviewing him. People play this as a like TV hell clip but Paul is really generous oh, to him. Oh bless him. And you know turns it back and goes like oh, it's quite interesting being interviewed by a young fella <laughs> You know, and that, you know, tries to engage him oh, in conversation. But he was constantly in the papers. But my favourites were, these names will probably, probably ring a very worrying bell in your head God. now. Wild Child
1: Emma <gasps> Ridley. Oh, oh and my quote, word. Yes.
0: Her pop husband, Robert Perrano. Now, even as a fairly pop music chart-obsessed youngster, I used to think, how is he her pop husband? What does he do? What's he involved with? All I found out about him in later years is he is in Extro the British sci-fi horror film from right. the early 80s, which is briefly considered a video nasty. That is all I know about him. I don't know about any links with pop music whatsoever. <laughs> and their celebrity appeared to be that she occasionally, she may have been 17 and drank a cocktail or something. Watch, go,
1: wild and child. And he was
0: nearby being her pop husband. <laughs> and That was all it was! But my theory about why they're sort of featuring people like these all the more is... I would say it started kind of in the early 80s, was there was a sudden change in access to celebrities because I can remember when Prince was when would he first been on the Brits there was a big outcry almost I couldn't figure out why there was an outcry about the fact he had security yes that's right when he came to get an award but then the world changed everyone was doing that there was less access to actual famous people and so maybe they just thought well these people will talk to us and seem like a bit of a laugh let's try and build them up a bit get a bit of reader interest and it didn't quite take off I guess
1: yes if the actual celebrities want to speak to us well uh, screw them We'll build our own celebrities.
0: <laughs> it's not a six million
1: dollar <laughs> We burn. have the technology. We have a hunky page seven fella. Now, was it ringing bells here with Emma Ridley? Was Emma Ridley the sister of Joanne Ridley, who was in Me and My Girl with Richard O'Sullivan? I
0: think she was. I'm fairly sure she was. Because I think she might have acted a bit herself.
1: Yes, I think you're right. Blimey. And Me and My Girl had the most delightful, wistful theme tune, which I think was so Was it sung by Peter Skellen?
0: It was, yes. There you go.
1: Sorry, I don't know how we got onto this. You're asking me a serious and sensible (laughs) question about the politics of 1980s celebrity, weren't you? And all I want to talk about is the title sequences to Sitcoms. There's me in a nutshell, Tim. I'm so sorry. I've derailed you already. It's, I won't attempt to get any kind of profundity out of me here. I'm I'm literally all surface. I
0: don't think you can. We're talking about the sort of people who would be in string fellows and might say to somebody, "Don't you know who I am?" And they say, "No."
1: <laughs> <laughs> in string fellows. Oh, it was a, it was a teenage ambition of mine to. I said, one day. One day I'll go to Stringfellows. And he had another one, didn't he? A nightclub called the Hip. Playboy club owner Peter Stringfellow. So it was my ambition throughout the 1980s to be able to go to Stringfellow's and doubtless to swig a bottle of some Alka-Pop standing next to Emma Ridley. Then in 1989 or 1990, I, I actually went to my first ever nightclub and any ambitions I had to spend much more time in them quickly dissipated. They, they weren't like the tabloids made them out to be. Do you
0: know what? I'd quite like to get one of these
1: people on, to be that be fantastic. Get Ralph Halpern on and ask him if he really did. If he if he bonked five times a night, fueled by sunflower seeds. I, I'm going to guess he probably didn't.
0: Well, I do wonder if he would even have heard of your next choice, who are a name that i completely forgotten until you mentioned them. We're going to hear a song by them now, which you might just remember hearing a lot on the TV programme. Okay, that was Accidentally Kelly Street by Frente, which will be burnt into your mind if you ever watched Home and Away at any point in the early 90s. A lot of people probably don't know any more about them than that, but Bob, tell us more.
1: Well, I was a huge fan of Home and Away in the early years. I think we have common ground in Summer Bay, don't we? So this was a song, I'd heard it on Home and Away, and it was regularly played in the Bayside Diner. I don't know whether Alf and Ailsa were receiving some kind of backhander from from Frente, but that particular song seemed to be on, on the radio in the Bayside Diner on a regular basis, and I always liked it. I always Like the sound of it, and obviously, in those days, it was very difficult to find out what it actually was. You know, in 1993 or whatever, where would you look to find out what a song was? And then I remember tuning into Mark Radcliffe and Mark Riley at Mark and Lard on the old graveyard shift on Radio One, which was a, a brilliant, brilliant program. It's probably no, you know, it, it definitely is responsible for not just me kind of getting into broadcasting and thinking, Oh, you know that might be interesting but I have told Mark Radcliffe this and Mark Riley I essentially ripped them off for the best part of 20 years tons of my shtick was nicked out of the old graveyard shift with Mark and Lord so I loved that programme to bits and I was tuning in one night now I can pin this down too it's somewhere between September 1993 and May 1994 because I was definitely in a rather shabby flat above a chip shop on Penny Street in Lancaster and I was tuning to to the Graveyard Shift and Frente were in session they were just yeah I remember us. that as well did you hear the same program
0: <laughs> yeah because I, I was astonished I thought that's the home of the way band what yeah. are they doing
1: on the Graveyard Shift so did you know it was them before you heard that do you know I
0: do but I don't know how I knew that it's one of those right. things like Mitch Ben was saying when he was on this how did things work in those days before I know. the internet how did you find out rumors how did you find out what things were called nobody seems yeah. to
1: remember no it's staggering isn't it I tell you what, on a complete tangent uh, around that same time I remember can you you imagine this these days i was a huge fan of the twilight zone and i used to watch and tape the twilight zone from channel 4 screenings you know late 80s early 90s i was in lancaster library once and i found a book about science fiction that right at the back of it had an episode guide for the twilight zone and i i virtually fainted on the spot because where else would i have found that i didn't know which episodes i was recording what order they came in didn't know how long the twilight zone had run for so that information just was not available that. So, no, you're absolutely right. Like, how did we do it? Anyway, tuning into Mark and Lard in my flat in Lancaster. Yeah, Frente on in session. And they played accidentally Kelly Street live in the studio. And I just, I was, that's it that's that bloody song from Home and Away and they just did did a little session, the other song I remember them doing that night was an absolutely beautiful acoustic version of Bizarre Love Triangle by New Order I was so taken with it, I'd actually started taping it so somewhere in a box in the loft is a tape of that programme and I actually prefer their version of Bizarre Love Triangle to New Order's version of it and I don't think it's on the album is it because I went out and bought the album, Marvin the album and I don't think Bizarre love triangle is on that, but but accidentally Kelly Street is, and I guess it's they're rather twee, aren't they? In a very lovely way.
0: Yeah, apparently there was a sketch on the Australian comedy show, The Late Show, where they did a parody of it called "Accidentally Was Released."
1: <laughs> oh, that's harsh. were they not particularly well thought of in australia then
0: i don't know because it was like another universe really because you did get these crossovers on neighbors and home and away in particular with what were obviously chart bands of the time yeah that didn't mean anything over here i mean the one that really startles me to this day was another home and away one i was briefly obsessed in i think it might have been early 1991 with this australian band called Ratcat. cat okay a kind of Punky, grungy band who had a single called Don't Go Now, which I loved and I still love. I got hold of that somehow. I think I ordered it from Backtracks Records in Liverpool. Right. And I got an import of it. I don't know where I'd even heard it. And I loved it. And then suddenly, you know, because we were like 18 months behind Home and Away or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly they turned up. As a plot point in Home and Away.
1: Oh, right. That
0: some characters were trying to sneak out to see them.
1: <laughs> and that, that
0: just seemed really weird to me, that it felt like this really underground thing that, who would have even been playing that? Maybe John Peel, I don't know. But yeah. it was obviously big news in Australia. And then you've got things like, there was, do you remember Dorothy Burke on Neighbours?
1: Here's a curious dichotomy. I absolutely worshipped, adored, and loved Home and Away to bits. <laughs> I watched it twice a day, every day, for the best part of a decade. I loved it. I have never knowingly seen a single episode of Neighbours.
0: Well, there was a storyline where Dorothy Burke, who was the second head of Erinsborough High after Old Muir, who was. She looked like a kind of starchy old Barbara Woodhouse type, but she turned okay. out to have been a hippie in the 60s. Right. And she was quite down with the kids. But how that was revealed was she announced there was to be a compulsory music appreciation lesson after school that everyone had to go to. And she said, I'm here to teach you all about Go 101! And this band came out, apparently, were really big <laughs> in Australia for about a year, called Go 101. And performed. Right. And, like, they were mates of hers from her festival days. Of or course. Whatever. But it was weird seeing, because in those days, we had no idea, really, what was going on in other countries, popular culture wise. Unless it was something like Modern Talking had a stray hit over here or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was yeah. always so weird to see. And I remember there was a phase when, I don't know if they're real or not, but. On Neighbours, Brad Willis was obsessed with the dirt bags, or as he called them, all the bags. <laughs> so that, when Frente showed up on the graveyard shift, which obviously I was obsessed with, I started it yeah. being really early in the show's existence, so it probably was late 93. Yeah. I was just astonished. That it didn't seem to make sense to me that Mark and Lars, you know, playing like... Jacob's Mouse singles. Yes, <laughs> people like that would be playing, a, you know, a band that had been in Home of the Way. It just didn't seem to add up to me.
1: Did you think they were fictional then, essentially?
0: I wondered if it was the kind of deal where they'd been made up for the programme. Right, okay. They'd recruited some people, you know, who could play into it to be a pretend yeah. band for it, and then they'd released records, you know, to try and cash in on it. But apparently they were a genuine band who had a reasonably long career around that time there was a kind of rush after woodface by crowded house which whatever you might think of where crowded house went later that took people by surprise yeah as a good acclaimed album and there was a brief attempt to punt a lot of similar australian and new zealand bands at the uk so very melodic
1: quite kind of gentle pop music very
0: much part of that i think
1: Yeah, no, I'd I'd really like them. I mean, they did a cracking session for Mark and Lard. I guess, like, if they'd they'd been a British band, they would have been on Sarah Records, wouldn't they? It's that kind of thing. Yeah. I think.
0: If you were that obsessed with Home and Away, though, you'll yeah. remember what's really stuck in my mind about the music they used to feature in the very early days. Do you remember what was unusual about the Bayside Diner music in the earliest years? So it tended to be sort of one or two note changed facsimiles of recent. I'm guessing they were UK hits that weren't really big in Australia, so they didn't get noticed. The ones that particularly stick in my mind were there was one that was almost Lombarda by Kaoma. There right. was there was get this. A tune based on Pacific State by Eight Hundred Eight State, right. and that was around the same time. There was a regular extra in the diner with a Net Atomic Dustbin T-shirt on, which was really <laughs> weird. And the oddest one of all was was one based on From Out of Nowhere by Faith No More.
1: Oh wow, right.
0: While Bobby was collecting washing up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so are these are kind of the, the equivalent of the top of the Pops albums that we had in the nineteen seventies. I think so, but
0: changed very slightly. Right, of the okay. it'd be to avoid <laughs> Of, of the tops, issues.
1: Yes. <laughs> I, always, I always think you can date a home and away fan by asking them who their favourite Pippa is. Oh, original Pippa. It is original Pippa for you. Uh, Vanessa Downing, isn't it? You see, I'm very much a Deborah Lawrence kind of guy. I was Pippa Mark too. I can chuck you in a top anecdote about Ray Marr, if you like. TV's Alf Stewart. And again, I, I, can you imagine how much research I had to do to find out how to pronounce his surname back in the <laughs> early days of the internet? But it is because I, for years, I thought he was Ray Meager. Um, yes. No, he, yeah. <laughs> it was Ray Meager and Judy Nunn played uh, Alf and Ailsa down at the diner Oh uh, no he is Ray Marr and bizarrely can you imagine the cognitive dissonance involved in this as a home and away fan and uh, for somebody uh, you know, for whom Summer Bay seemed an awful long way away Ray Marr did pantomime in Darlington which is five miles away from where I'm sitting now so obviously I went to see him in Panto in Darlington he was playing Baron Hardup in Cinderella and he was fantastic uh, but also uh, it's very early days on the radio for me, this I would say it was probably around two thousand and one, and I managed to get an interview with Ray Ma just over the phone. Great thing about him, number one, I asked him, you know, what what tempts you to come halfway across the world to do pantomime in Darlington? And he basically said he came to Darlington for the climate. <laughs> what? <laughs> because he said, Australia in the wintertime is just far too hot for him. But also, he sounded a little bit sleepy at the start of the interview. And So before we went on air, you know, he said, I, are you all right, Ray? You did everything okay? He said, ah, it's, uh, it's been a bit of a rough night. There was a fire alarm went off overnight in the hotel. So we all had to assemble out in the street. I said, Ray, I can just imagine you stomping up and down the streets of Darlington at two o'clock in the morning. What? <laughs> the flaming hell is going on here you flaming galah you young hoon you bunch of larrikins and he said yeah you know what mate you've got it pretty much on the money
0: well i can end this section on another bizarre home <laughs> and away anecdote which is literally a couple of days ago justine clark who played rue in the very early days yeah. of home and away liked the tweet plugging the it's good except it sucks episode about thor <laughs> <laughs> I would love to know what that's about. Justine, if you're listening,
1: please tell me. Well, get her on. Get her on. Looks familiar. <laughs> how how great would that be? A bona fide home and away star on Looks familiar. Okay, well, this is a bit of a tortured
0: link, but I do wonder if Frente had been around maybe 10 years earlier, they might have shown up in the musical internet <laughs> <laughs> on the next show you picked, which is one that people will remember really well, but not for this reason. <laughs> Podmore's End. Never heard of it. You familiar with Podmore's End?
1: Not at all.
0: Mm, Lucky Podmore. (laughs) Don't make pathetic jokes, Brian. You haven't the faintest idea where we are, have you? I know exactly where we are, Muriel. We're lost. That's where we are. (laughs)
1: There's
0: another name up there. I can't see it from here.
1: Well, get out, then.
0: Place called Mile Away. Half a mile away. (laughs) That was unmistakably the two Ronnies, or at least one of them, and a sketch called Mile Away, which I'll admit I have no recollection of at all. But, Bob, it sounds like it's lodged in your mind.
1: It really has. I say, if if Frente are going to get a regular spot on the two Ronnies, they're going to have to do some serious elbowing of Elaine Page and Barbara Dixon first. (laughs) This is a, a a weird little moment in the evolution of the two Ronnies. It's series 10 of the two Ronnies, which went out... Uh, it's a curious one, actually. But it started being broadcast in very late December 1983. So one of the regular episodes kind of doubles as the Christmas special although it's not particularly Christmassy. It's just a series that happened to fall over Christmas. It kind of differs from previous series of the Two Ronnies. I think the writing here and there is possibly a little bit spikier and I suspect that that is the result of having people like David Renwick and indeed Andrew Marshall writing for the series. And I've got an inkling they might be responsible for the element of Two Ronnies Series 10 that I really really. really wanted to bring up here, which is essentially, uh, unlikely as this is, Two Ronnies Telefantasy. I mean, you know, the Two Ronnies became quite well known for having these little self-contained, almost like mini-dramas in some of their episodes. So in earlier series, you've got things like the Piggy Malone and Charlie Farley series, and the Phantom Raspy Blower of Old London Town, and uh, The Worm That Turned. So, you know, they had a, a reputation for doing these curious little mini-dramas, but they'd often been serialised in previous series. They were episodic, and in series 10, they're not so you've got this, I mean it's a six episode series, so you've got these six little dramatic, obviously comedy drama inserts, all entirely made on film, all on location and inserted into the episodes and a lot of them in this series have a real science fiction fantasy element to them, which with the benefit of hindsight, I mean you have to assume that came from David Renwick, because obviously he went on to write Jonathan Creek and so much of this stuff bears his hallmarks. So I wanted to pick out a few of these because I really loved them when I was a kid and they've really kind of stuck in my mind since and when the DVDs were coming out the two Ronnies DVDs as I recall came out very very slowly you had to there might have been a year between series no it can't because ten series there's more than that it can't possibly have been can it but it was. It seemed like a long way in between series of the two Ronnies coming out and the ones that I wanted were the ones that I remembered from the early 1980s when I started watching so in this particular series I, episode one of the two Ronnies series 10 has a skit called Raiders of the Lost Orc which is obviously a, it's an Indiana Jones spoof in which Ronnie Corbett plays Little Hampton Jones. And there is actually an on-screen credit for that, which is uh, it is David O. Renwick. And I think Leslie Ash plays his companion in that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a fairly kind of... It's very good, but it's a standard to Ronnie's pastiche of a well-known film. But it's when these things go off into their own strange little realm that I think they kind of come into their own. So episode three has an insert called The Adventures of Archie which is a time travel comedy so Ronnie Corbett plays a character called Archie Barber who is just, he's an ordinary guy, he's at home in, what Doctor Who fans will appreciate is indeed a CSO kitchen. Um, (laughs) He is genuinely is. He's at home in his his colour separation overlay kitchen and I think he rubs like a tidy little jar that he's found in the garden and uh, he gets transported through time on a magic carpet, he finds himself in old Baghdad and ultimately he He's marooned on a desert island where he is rescued and right and can you imagine the excitement the sheer excitement that this provoked in me as God how old would I have been I was 11 years old when I saw this. Now this is the very height of my Doctor Who obsession. So Bear in mind, Doctor Who hadn't been on air since it would have been uh, Resurrection of the Daleks, wouldn't it, in the spring of 1983. That would have been the last bit of Doctor Who, the last bit of new Doctor Who that I saw, I think. I was starved of Doctor Who. Ronnie Corbett is marooned on a desert island and suddenly, out of nowhere, is the sound Of the TARDIS. And the TARDIS, the actual TARDIS, materialises on the desert island. And I, here I am, sitting at home, 11 years old, Doctor Who obsessive, I nearly hit the roof. Oh, my God. Peter Davison, in full Doctor Who costume, is going to walk out of the TARDIS and rescue (laughs) Ronnie Corpett. It's not Peter Davison in full Doctor Who costume. (laughs) It's Roddy Barker who's playing Wurzel Gummidge who's playing Doctor Who. Essentially, it's Wurzel Gummidge operating the TARDIS. Safe to say, I was slightly disappointed.
0: Is it also safe to say Ronnie Barker had never seen either of those (laughs) things?
1: (laughs) He does a halfway passable Wurzel Gummidge, I think. But no, I suspect it wasn't a huge priority for him sitting down and watching either programme. So I have to feel slightly aggrieved that Ronnie Barker never appeared in Doctor Who because he would have made a brilliant man from the Ministry in one of the John Pertwee stories, I think. It's an opportunity so, Mile Away is in episode four. Now, Mile Away is absolutely sumptuous. Basically, the premise of this Ronnie Corbett, and I think. I think it's April Walker who we now know was cast as the original Sarah Jane Smith in Doctor Who before Elizabeth Sladen got the part so I think it's her, although it's difficult to tell from two Ronnie's credits sometimes anyway, uh, Roddy Corbett and his wife, they're called Brian and Muriel, they're driving around typically luscious English countryside in an open top sports car on a glorious summer's day and they admit that they are lost Muriel is somewhat frosty about the situation. She is a kind of typical to Ronnie's wife. Brian, uh, Ronnie Corbett, gets out of the car and notices that there is a signpost hidden amongst the trees that points to a place called Mile Away. It's half a mile away. They walk through the trees and they find themselves apparently having gone through some kind of time portal. They are in a medieval village that's been hidden within this little pocket of woodland and they immediately find themselves speaking to Patrick Troughton. And Patrick Troughton is a kind of local yokel in this beautifully realized i mean it really is sumptuous this medieval village that was created for let's face it a, you know a, an eight minute sketch and ronnie barker is introduced as the kind of the squire he is the loud rumbustuous squire of mile away they're looking for a for a place to stay for the night because they're lost and as, uh, as as muriel points out they want single beds Separate single beds Ronnie Barker the squire of mile away, drags them in and it you know one of my favorite tropes in TV in, in fantasy in particular is the kind of the Larry squire who says but come you are guests in our humble village tonight a feast and claps his hands twice and serving plates appear. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is absolutely that. And that is essentially the story. I mean, at the end of it, they are plied with wine and food and, you know, pigs' heads with apples in their mouths on the banqueting table. At the end of it, they are told by Ronnie Barker that they must... Fight. They say, you must offer recompense. And they have. <laughs> Ron- 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 Ronnie Corbett has got his Barclay cards, and that's about as far as he goes. So, you know, curiously enough, aren't accepted in the medieval idyll of Mile Away. So, Corbett finds himself stuck outside in the stocks all night. His wife, now, this is, uh, you know, by 2020 standards, shall we say, a problematic aspect of Mile Away. His wife is taken upstairs by the squire to pay via a separate arrangement, and in the morning appears to be entirely refreshed by this, which I suspect would raise eyebrows in 2020 but you know despite that it is written in the most i mean it's written in cod shakespearean i'm no expert on shakespeare i think part of it is actually delivered in iambic pentameter which is extraordinary and at the end of it as they drive away are we allowed to give spoilers here for a for a 35 year old i don't think we'll get many complaints
0: about two ronnie spoilers
1: (laughs) there's such a thing as a two Ronnie spoiler do you know at the um, end
0: they say it's good night for me it's good night for
1: him <laughs> well no it's, oh, I'm going to give away more than that it is a complete swizz so we cut to Ronnie Barker as the squire who's got a fag in his mouth and he's going through a big pile of Barclay cards that he has amassed from other visitors to Mile Away and as they drive away there's just a little bit uh, there's a snippet of a specially recorded Terry Wogan on the car radio which warmed my heart as well so that is Mile Away and then I say the other one is right at the end of the series. Now, this follows, I think, the greatest musical thing that the Two Ronnies ever did, which is a gorgeous, melancholy song about clowns. Just, I think it's called "People Don't Want Clowns No More," and it's, yeah. at, it is. Gorgeous.
0: You might have heard of who wrote that. Actually. I don't
1: know. Go on. Who was it? It
0: was a guy called Barry Booth who in the oh, late sixties yeah. was a diversion kind of like UK psych pop star yeah. who co-wrote an album with Michael Palin and Terry Jones. Diversions, it's a, it's a great album. album. It is but a great album. That. Yeah.
1: I didn't know he'd written that. Oh, that's fantastic. People don't want clowns no more. And that
0: has the line in it where they start naming all the people that take yep. the focus off clowns, where they say like little and large, cannon and ball, the yep. fat one and the little one who's names i can't recall which i remember happening I Compa- that as a child well
1: completely the same cut through with a streak of melancholy as well i just thought it because i love I, I am one <laughs> Did you know what people say oh it, uh, clowns were always horrible clowns were always creepy Bollocks. I loved clowns as a kid. I thought clowns were hilarious. So clowns were a big thing for me when I was tiny. And I was aware by 1983, 84, when this went out, that, you know, the heyday of the clown was probably over. And I just thought it was a beautiful song. And yeah, that lovely self-referential bit in it as well. Just gorgeous. Straight after that, the immediate sketch after that, is a sketch called The Bogle of Bogfell. Oh, Um, yes. Yes, in which Ronnie Corbett plays a Scottish ghost with his complete, like... Face and hands completely whited out. I think he's a murdered husband in the Scottish Highlands who's uh, vowed to take his revenge on on the village. Is it Cockaliki Castle? Cockahoopy Castle, that's it. It's Cockahoopy Castle. He's vowed to take his revenge on the inhabitants of Cockahoopy Castle forever. But when he's scared himself, he hides in the toilet. So he is the the bogle. He's the Scottish ghost. He is the bogle. And at the end of this particular instalment, he hides in the toilet which falls off the end of the cliff. So he is the bogle of Bogford fell because that's what happened the bog fell it's wonderful I'm guessing that this is all the work of David Renwick and or Andrew Marshall and uh, yeah I uh, again just stuck with me for an awful long time
0: well it has reminded me of in the roundabout way because I mean, I remember the bogle the bog fell very well but the main yeah. reason I remember it was it's weird to think back now that you know with our kind of cynical adult heads on these days you look at the two Ronnies in the early 80s and regardless of you know whether they are any good or not most of the time they were good but you do think they were kind about a step with not even just with you know the usual things say oh alternative comedy come along they're yeah. a step with the rest of comedy I think but as kids watching it in the early eighties it was the funniest thing on TV and the main thing I remember is in school the next day. Everyone would be talking about bits of the two Ronnies. I remember being briefly a celebrity because I could remember verses from the Ballad of Snivelling and Grudge, which was from around that time. Another thing I remember is on the playground one day, overhearing some kids, they were obviously playing the two Ronnies. And I heard one of them say, OK, I'll go... Da, da, and you go because do, they couldn't sing the theme because obviously when you played TV shows in school, you had to sing the theme tune. Yeah. But the two Ronnies theme was too expressionistic for one person to do, <laughs> they duetted it. Oh. There was that thing as well of because you know we weren't familiar with a lot of the reference points in these things, mm. and I think before Mile Away was that where I'm fairly sure I found out while I was looking into this. Immediately before that was the Cleo and Johnny Dankworth. I think you're right. Musical parody, which as a big fan of Cleo and Johnny, I have some issues with now, but at the time... I thought it was hilarious. These people I'd never heard of were being pastiged.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Cause when you watch I remember watching the two Roddies in the early eighties, and again, you know, very of its time. There are lots of jokes about Raquel Welsh, who wasn't a particularly you know, she wasn't a big figure in the pop culture of the early eighties. And they went over my head a little bit as well. So I remember asking my mum who Raquel Welsh actually was, that they kept going on about. So yeah, I think I mean they the series ran for a long time. I think it did get a little bit bit out of touch. I do wonder if they knew that and attempted to address it by bringing in people like Renwick and Marshall. Do
0: you remember what the very last ever sketch they did as a going concern was?
1: Oh, I don't. Go on. It's a
0: 1987 Christmas special. It's yeah. Pinocchio 2. Oh, yeah, Kill I remember doll, that. Which yes. is a sketch about video nasties. Yes. It was grotesque. <laughs> I mean, what are they doing? Sending up video nasties three years too late anyway. <laughs> but It's horrendous and it's the last thing
1: they did. Do you know what? As I a kid, I mean, you talk about the Ronnie's, you know, maybe not having their fingers immediately on the pulse of popular culture. That wouldn't necessarily have occurred to me as a kid I, you know, and that gap between alternative and traditional TV comedy probably wasn't something that particularly struck me at all I, I loved The Young Ones and I watched it and I quoted it at school as did we all but I did the same with The Two Ronnies and I don't think it would have occurred to me that they were two completely different schools of comedy and they made me laugh and that was it as far as I was concerned at the age of 11 or 12 or whatever I was
0: I've just got to ask one thing though I yeah. mean you will obviously know it because you've got other DVDs but I'm just going to say anyway, do you remember when they did the Top of the Pops parody, which we won't talk much about for obvious reasons? Yes. But Adamant was sent up in it with a song that sounded at least like anything Adamant ever did possible. To the extent I always have a brilliant thing about what if they kept going and they say, done. they were have the Stone Roses in about 1996. and had the same tune as that. They said they're going, Wanna be a fly upon a ball, Wanna be a fly, Wanna be a fool upon some gold, Wanna be a fool. I don't know. I just. I just of well, them were all right worth it they this totally off beam parody that they
1: did I can't recall the Adamant one The one that sticks in my head is the bad manners one which I <laughs> believe was called bad habits I've got yes. bad habits I don't clean out me rabbits I, I think how many uh, how many people I've done this with I think I've interviewed two people who were lampooned by the two Ronnies in their top of the pop sketches <laughs> uh, one of whom was definitely Buster Blood Vessel and the other one was Chaz Hodges of Chaz and Dave I was asked them both did you see the two Ronnies spoof you when it first went out and they both said yes and they both said they absolutely loved it but my ambition obviously at some point in my vague meandering career is to interview Adam Ant and find out what he made of that (laughs)
0: I think he might be slightly less
1: abused,
0: <laughs> used maybe.
1: But, yeah. Yes, yeah. Boy George, did, uh, Ronnie Corbett did Boy George, didn't he?
0: Thinking, Do you really want to squirt do me? You do really you really want, want to,
1: to squirt me? Make me, That's make right. me wet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, just remember. I guess it goes back to tabloid celebrities. There was a little cutaway in that routine of Ronnie Corbett as Boy George, very deliberately sipping a cup of tea, which got a huge roar of laughter from the audience, which I think was it must have been around the time that Boy George said he would rather have a cup of tea than have sex. The two Ronnies obviously picked up on that, so I'll stick him on the list as well. I'd like to speak to Boy George and find out what he made of Ronnie Corbett's impersonation as well.
0: Okay, well to introduce your next choice, all I could think of was somebody who wasn't just out of step with comedy in the early 80s. He was out of step with comedy pretty much any time ever. You don't even know what we're going to play here, but I'll tell you what it is afterwards.
1: My brother's in the merchant navy. He brings me things from where he's been. Let from france and caps from holland and once from denmark a bookie magazine and i remembered mother's advice if i ever looked at photographs that weren't quite nice i'd turn to stone right there part of me did but i just didn't care and i'll bet you a quid that you've never seen anything like my brother's magazine i'll bet you a quid that you've never seen anything like my brother's magazine. The
0: right way up. Okay, that was My Brother's Magazine by Ivor Biggin, a.k.a. Doc Cox. Someone <laughs> caused me immense amusement as a teenager, and let's just say I'm a bit embarrassed by that fact now. But Bob, it isn't your brother's magazine as such. It's your books you didn't own. <laughs>
1: Oh God, I've just basically done like a litany of filth for looks unfamiliar this time, Tim. I'm so sorry. I feel like we've delved far too much into matters carnal this time around. This is, and it's quite specific this, this is the books with risque covers that you would find on advertisements for book clubs in the radio and TV times. Am I making sense here? Have you You're any idea what I'm talking about? Absolute sense
0: to me, yes.
1: <laughs> so there seemed to be a period again. I think we're talking late 1970s, early 1980s here. When I was going to call them coffee table books, but I, <laughs> certainly, certainly no coffee table that we ever owned in the 70s and 80s could have had books like this lying on it. So, I get, like, the obvious one is the joy of sex, which appeared to be advertised... Anytime you opened the Radio Times, you would find... I get Was it called the Britannia Book Club? Was that one of them?
0: There was the Britannia Book Club. Yeah. There was the Leisure Circle Book Club as well, right. which is one I particularly
1: remember. <laughs> right. So, every time you opened the Radio or TV Times, you'd find a page advertising one of these book clubs, and there would be, like, a, a spread... Of uh, that you know, laid out along the page, you know, you're probably a couple of dozen books with prices attached to them, and there was always the joy of sex in there, which obviously as a kid, you're like, wow, really? Wow, what's this? I've got to have a look at this. But that wasn't the only one. And The other one that stuck in my head. God, things stick in my head a lot, don't they? Stop using that expression. There's a book called Rude Food. The only thing that I knew about Rude Food was its title. And the fact that on every advert for these book clubs, you could see a little glimpse of the front cover of Rude Food. The cover of Rude Food. was a picture of, quite frankly, a naked woman lying on her back with what appears to be a green leaf salad covering her front bottom. So as you can imagine, as an 11-year-old boy, this piqued my interest somewhat. What was the deal with these book clubs? Did you... Because I think they made a thing of you got the first book free, didn't you? But then you were kind of committed for the rest of your eternal days and beyond to buy a book every month? Was it something like that?
0: I think it might be two books every month.
1: So there you go. You, you could get, you get the joy of sex and rude food in your first month.
0: <laughs> well, I was going to say, quite often there were books on there which said, count as one choice on the little flash <laughs> between them. And also, the sort of ones you mentioned it, said explicit content. Explicit <laughs> like content. Like the covers didn't tell you that
1: already. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's, there's no need to put... Ex- explicit content on oh you know my ears are pricking up already that's that's not going to not going to put me off sticking a, a banner with explicit content on it so in uh, 1978 rude food came out now i'd never i that's the lie i had i had had a brief flick through the joy of sex <laughs> in the intervening years but i'd never seen rude food so knowing that we were doing this in the interests of research i took myself to ebay and i have bought a copy of rude food and I've got it in me hand here. And the book is in the other hand. Uh, so this is Rude Food by David Thorpe. And it is essentially... Uh, there's no other way of describing it. It is a book of photographs of food arranged in suggestive positions with naked people draped around it. It's hard to imagine. I mean, what was the audience for this book? It's kind of pitched somewhere between Delia Smith and Razzle. It's It's just... <laughs> <laughs> I just like the woman on the front who's got the green salad all over her nether portions. She is actually featured within the main part of the book as well. And she's having she's she's having extra virgin olive oil poured all over it. <laughs> with it still in situ. No. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, a terrible mess. So Somebody at some point is going to have to come along with a cloth and clear all that lot up. And I don't envy them the job one bit. It's very middle class, put it that way. The food featured in this book is not the food that I would have been eating on Teesside in the early 1980s. <laughs> Quite frankly, it was a a naked woman with a green salad over her naked portions. She would have had lashings of Heinz tomato sauce poured all over that in our house. (laughs) (laughs) Or, sal- or salad cream, which is arguably even worse. But yeah, no, it is... It is in- gonna, can I read you a bit from it? Because uh, like, there are kind if of... If you insist. <laughs> <laughs> this is the centre page. And it is... I'm going to pronounce it Soul Colbert, but it could be Soul Colbert. I don't know. I don't have an idea what it is, really. It takes quite an accomplished cook to prepare what has been called the most erotic fish dish of all. The ingredients are nothing special. A skinned sole, some small shrimp, plenty of parsley and a cream sauce. The trick is to arrange everything so that the soft white fillets curve gently round the creamy sauce like two long lips. Surround them with thick curls of parsley. Insert the shrimp and the effect is... Well, you get the idea. And no, it, it, I don't. I really, really don't. <laughs> well, if you saw the picture, Tim, you would, because quite frankly, it is a bloke fingering a soul.
0: <laughs> I wish I hadn't asked <laughs>
1: So that's Rude Food. I believe there was... I haven't stumped up the cash for the sequel. I think there was a sequel to it called Rude Cocktails, because I remember the front cover of that. I remember
0: the front cover of that, which was basically similar, but with a cocktail glass covering the offending area.
1: Absolutely. It's very much in the style of the camping scene from Austin Powers. (laughs) There's a naked woman with a large cocktail glass obscuring her nether portions. I'm not going to buy Rude Cocktails, I think. I think I'm done with Rude Food. There were definitely more of these things, and I can't remember them at all. Any any idea, Tim?
0: Well, there were. I was racking my brains remember, but I was also thinking, who were these books actually for? Well, because quite. adolescents couldn't sign up to a book club you know, quite. with their credit card details or whatever. Yeah. Most adults would probably have not been that, even in the olden days, when you couldn't, you know, you didn't have the internet, you couldn't get hold of stuff to slake your thirst, should we say. <laughs> uh, who would actually have wanted a book of bloody recipes to sit? there and get excited by. You know. It's not even
1: recipes, Tim. It's just talking about food in a vaguely smutty manner accompanied <laughs> by pictures. I don't know is the answer to that. I <laughs> so, you know. You Pornography did exist before the internet. If you went to any local hedgerow, you could find it all torn up. If you went to your local news agency, it was on the top shelf. I don't know who would specifically join the Britannia Book Club just to order a copy of Rude these Food. Of these books in the hedge just
0: helped. <laughs>
1: I assume it sold in decent enough quantities for them to do rude cocktails.
0: Well, yeah, but my main memory is that they were like sort of almost hidden away at the edges of the listings. You got all this other stuff yeah. in those. Oh, places. you had to, you had there was to a work big for splash them. Splash of books, with, you yes. know, things over there like publisher price seven ninety five, offer price twenty five p. Yes, and it was full of things like there were odd self help books, odd factual books. There were all these novelists that you never heard of anywhere yeah. else. The other thing I remember is there were loads of gruesome things like kind of written by former Scotland Yard detective called Inside oh, yeah. the Minds of Maniacs or whatever. They covers <laughs> where you couldn't quite work out what the hell they were with like some metal implements <laughs> and stone or whatever. And you're thinking, I actually don't want to know.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. There's things about the Black Museum. Does the Black Museum yes! still exist? <laughs> they were Scot- obsessed with that <laughs> one. Scotland Yard's Black Museum. I have
0: found that the Christmas 1988 TV Times double issue I found an advert for the Leisure Circle book club. And do you want to know some of the other things that are in it? Well, we have got Techniques of Making Love. Good Lord. And What Makes a Woman Sexy, which counts as one choice. Does any
1: of it involve green leaf salad? Is that mentioned anywhere?
0: No, there was a very blurred photo of a, a naked couple on the cover of Techniques right. of Making Love and a woman wearing stockings on the Christine Keeler chair and What Makes a Woman Sexy. <laughs> We've also got Hot Money by Dick Francis. Right. That was made for these book clubs. We've got... Elvis in colour? Why was that a selling point in the 80s? Elvis
1: Elvis had been in colour since 1960.
0: (laughs) The red arrow's rolling now, exclamation mark.
1: Is there a Jilly Cooper on there anywhere?
0: There isn't. There's a biography (gasps) of Doris Stokes. There's a Daniel Steele novel. Right. Something that says, actually, says Peter Rabbit book, but before I magnified it, look, they said Peter Rabbit down, like Black Hawk Down. (laughs) There's atlases, the Hutchinson Encyclopedia, Little Clothes for Little People, the Allergy Self-Help book. It was just always <laughs> stuff like that, where now you'd see it in the words.
1: I was just about to say, this is essentially discount book stuff, isn't it?
0: How did the model work? Did people really sign up to these things? I just can't say, because books were, I won't say a luxury in those days, but you didn't buy them lightly, I don't think.
1: No, that is, uh, you know, I guess I had more books than some kids, but uh, that was because I was obsessed with Doctor Who target novelisations, over <laughs> general. <laughs> any whenever I went to WH Smith's in Middlesbrough on a Saturday morning. We didn't have huge numbers of books in the house, we went to the library. Any book that came into our house, as a rule, had to go back in four weeks' time, or me dad would be grumbling about a ten pence fine.
0: Okay, well, I don't remember seeing these much past the end of the 80s, the book club adverts, because, you know, times are moving forward You're getting exciting new shows on TV, like your next choice. <music> Sugs on Saturday, which, let's face it, is pretty much a self-explanatory title. Is it going to be any different, Bob, from what people are expecting?
1: Not in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> it is Suggs from Madness, and he's on the telly, and can you guess which day of the week he was broadcasting? Yeah, Suggs on Saturday. This is essentially, it's a music programme, and very much of that... It's become known as post-pub TV, hasn't it? That genre of slightly shambolic, slightly anarchic... You know, the word, I guess, is the prime example of this. And I suspect the producers of Suggs on Saturday had seen the word and thought, oh, we could do an even more low-rent version of that on, and this is the key here on our brand new channel, because Suggs on Saturday was a program that went out on BSB. The Squarial and everything. Now, I can actually, I can pinpoint a pivotal moment in my life here. Everyone's got these turning points in their life, and I've pinpointed mine. I can give you an actual date here, and the date is the 29th of September, 1990 which was the day on which we got BSB installed in our house. And I can tell you that because I know full well that I came home from Middlesbrough's 6-0 victory over Leicester City to find the BSB man in our front room installing the whole kit and caboodle. Now this actually came, this was the culmination of an Olympic standard pester on my part because I'd spent pretty much the entirety of 1990 trying to persuade my parents that our lives would be transformed beyond all recognition, if we could have BSB installed. Now, can you guess, Tim, knowing what you know about me, what my possible ulterior motive may have been here? It was the fact that BSB were re-showing episodes of Doctor Who from the 1960s and 70s. I got wind of this sometime in early 1990. My head exploded. I was 17 years old. I think I essentially thought I'd grown out of Doctor Who at this point. But then this TV channel launched that wasn't sh- showing the odd episode; it was showing all of them in order. Quite frankly, we were, there was no possibility that we weren't going to have this installed in our house. However, the sticking point in all of this was my dad. Who, when my campaign of terror began, my dad's attitude towards BSP was essentially four channels of bloody rubbish in the house already we're going to pay for more of it we're going to pay for more of it however a turning point here was the fact that in April 1990 My dad went to work away. He went to work in the Middle East for a few years. So it was just me and my mum in the house. I just put the pestering into overdrive at that point and she quite clearly cracked. Obviously, I watched Doctor Who on a weekend and absolutely reveled in it. However, this coincided with a point at which me and my teenage mates were indeed starting to go to the pub. We were still a little bit underage. we would go and have a skinful down whatever local would serve us. We'd probably take a bottle of merry down to the school field and then we would pile back to my house where my mum, god bless her, was always incredibly tolerant of me and uh, four mates coming back and we put BSB on and we discovered that Suggs was hosting this music program on a Saturday night. I think it started about half past ten eleven o'clock on a Saturday evening and it was one of those that essentially just went on until quite frankly Suggs and the cameraman got bored and decided to go home. It, It would frequently go through until the early hours of the morning. So Suggs and a couple of guests in the studio, playing music videos, talking about music, talking about whatever crossed their minds, Getting slightly drunk, we always suspected, and it was fantastic. It was genuinely great. Now, I've actually got... I've got Suggs' autobiography here, and he writes about... Uh, he doesn't actually name the programme, which is curious. So I suspect he couldn't remember what it was called.
0: Hang on! No, he's called Suggs, and he did it on Saturday. Yes! I can't
1: remember what oh, it's called! All the clues were there. <laughs> Weirdly, he doesn't mention the name of the programme at all. But anyway, this is page 207 of Suggs' autobiography. I kind of fell into two tea- TV completely by chance. I was in the process of making this solo record and I got a call asking me to host a music show for a newfangled broadcaster. Who could have known how big satellite broadcasting was going to become? At the time, there were two fierce rivals, Sky TV and British Satellite Broadcasting. Well... You can guess which one I was on the phone to. But BSB, as it was known, had a secret weapon in the technological race to dominate the airwaves. Yes, the Squarial. Who can forget it? Who wouldn't want a piece of that space-age bling on their roof? Well, as it turned out, not many. The show was really good fun. It mainly showed videos, but I also had guests on. I remember sometimes I'd get some young bands that I knew so little about that I'd actually swap chairs and make them interview me. But one night I did have Anthony Wilson, George Best and Mark E. Smith on and we all just took the crew down the pub. I was in the managing director's office when the first three weeks audience figures came in. Four, literally four people watching it at any given moment.
0: Was that you with one of your friends at home? Well,
1: this is... Uh, right, I take issue with BSP's audience figures here. Because I could name them. There was me, there was Gaz Norman, there was Andrew Harding, known inexplicably to everybody as Roy, there was Simon Wes Westwood, there was Gavin Wilkinson, and there was my mum who would sit up to make sure that we all got home safely from the pub. So there were six people alone in my front room watching Sugs on Saturday on a regular basis. I love this, fellas. Let me read you this at the end here. I once left my chair empty for ten minutes to see if anybody noticed. Nobody did. (laughs) It's doing himself down here. It was a terrific program. I would say the best radio is radio, and again, it comes back to Mark and Lard on the graveyard shift here, is radio when it just feels like you're in a room with a couple of mates and they're playing you their record collection and it's fantastic. That is the best radio for me when you're just having a night in with some really entertaining people with great music taste. And Suggs on Saturday was absolutely like that. The one that I remember, because I was a huge Vic and Bob fan, there was an episode of Suggs on Saturday where uh, Vic and Bob were in the studio with him. So this would have been between the first two series of Big Night Out, and they were just, they were on absolutely sparkling form. Two bits of it that I remember that I don't think I've seen them do anywhere else was uh, Vic Reeves claiming that he was about to open a magazine d'amour. He kept talking about this magazine (laughs) d'amour that he was about to open. (laughs) It's a sex shop, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) They've only got a stock rude food in it. And the pair of them, I I don't think they ever developed this into a full routine. They kept asking each other in West Country accents if they smoked horse. Uh, that went on throughout the entire programme, and Sugs was somewhat bemused by it. But it was brilliant. It was just a genuinely lovely piece of TV. Now, I did, uh, this is heartbreaking, I did tape, on an actual tape, on a VHS tape, because I was so obsessed with Vic and Bob. When I realised they were on, I shoved a pin. Did you have a tape that was just handy for anything that might pop up yes. on TV? <laughs> <laughs> oh, whoa, hang on, hang on. Scott Walker's on with Jules Holland. I'll stick a tape in. I had tape that was just, it was set aside. Anything random on TV that I fancied came Uh, So I did that with this and I had pretty much that whole program recorded and I Lent it about a month later to a friend from sixth form and never got it back. I suspect that was possibly the only recording (laughs) of that program if anybody is listening to this if anybody has got any home VHS recordings of Suggs on Saturday it's almost become a holy grail for me I'd love to see it again there's nothing on YouTube as far as I can see I suspect like you say BSB or what, you know, whatever remains of BSB probably doesn't have them either by the sounds of it Suggs doesn't have them considering he's of to know what the program was called so I'd love to find it maybe somewhere. his
0: videotapes has got a blank label on the spot <laughs> that's, <it. laughs> that's he why you can't find
1: it maybe he didn't write it on at the time exactly yeah no I'd I love to see it again I no, have hugely fond memories of it
0: well I've got a couple of observations about it the first is that about his autobiography where it he says he's working on solo record at the time yeah. now His debut solo album, The Lone Ranger, (laughs) came out in 1995, even allowing for the Madness Reunion in 1992. That is a long time to be making a solo album. I've got some questions there.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know. Maybe he just took his time over it. Did he go? He did do a lot of TV presenting around that time, didn't he?
0: Well, he did, because that was one of my other points. Isn't it strange that he never really took off as a presenter? Because he was far more capable Mm. and personable than a lot of people that did. He did a lot for Channel 5, didn't he? Yes, he did Night Fever. Yes. But he just never seemed to capture the public imagination, which is really weird.
1: It's odd, isn't it? Because, like you say, he's such a likable guy. He's a very, very capable presenter. So Suggs on Saturday was shambolic, to say the least, at times. But Suggs absolutely held it together. He was fantastic, quick-witted, and uh, you know, and not a bad interviewer at all. So yeah, no, it just never worked out for him. I've seen him live on stage in, uh, there's an arc in Stockton a couple of years ago, and he he does a one-man show, like a spoken word show about his background and his family, and his fantastic he's such an engaging storyteller and yeah it's a shame he should have been presenting music programs and documentaries on bbc4 by now
0: exactly and the other thing though is that like you say there was quite a lot of attempts to create quote marks post-pub tv around that time yeah. most of which i really loved the big ones for me were in bed with me dinner where it now oh, gets yeah. down to bob mills laughing at clips of things but he did stuff like he'd do bits where he went to the off license and that's them what the most exotically named booze they had for <laughs> You know, that sort of thing. And the other one was Danny Baker After All, which I adore, right? Which is his Saturday Night Chat show. Oh yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, has yeah. such a bad rap, but that was fantastic. I love that. But I think the mistake they made with these programmes was that they didn't understand that people, when they came back from, in the verticom, the pub, they wanted to relax. Yeah. They didn't want to be shouted at by their drunk mates again. Yes, and that's yeah. why the things never really took off. Until I think the people that got it right were Adam and Joe with the Adam and Joe show where basically mm. that was founded on what people were doing if they weren't in the pub because they couldn't afford to or they went allowed in because they smelt too bad or whatever <laughs> because that's the only time that I've seen the TV programme and thought people have been spying on me and my friends because we did, when we couldn't afford to go places we did things like we tried the Pop Rocks and Diet Coke thing to see if it actually worked. You know, we were always making up you know, parodies of nothing on the par with the Bob Hoskins song or the Robert De Niro song, but that kind of thing. It felt so much like my real life that I think that's why they took off, why they struck a chord. Yeah, I
1: uh, do you know, you talk about the last thing that you want when you come in from the pub is people shouting at you. My memories, because I was, I was getting into nightclubs, not Stringfellows and the Hippodrome, obviously. <laughs> it was the Tall Trees and Kirk Levington Country Club, but I was getting into nightclubs and blazes in Middlesbrough God help me But it's getting into nightclubs so what you do you go to a nightclub and again you forget how difficult it could be especially if you were in you know a kind of reasonably small town how difficult it could be to find a nightclub that played the kind of music that you liked so I was, you know, I was into quite grotty indie music you might if you were lucky find a student night on a Tuesday night but on a Friday so you want to carry on drinking after the pub you would end up going to a nightclub that was essentially just playing kind of like beaty dance music and you know, chart hits all of the time. So, you know, against my better judgment, I would find myself dancing to Stock and Apartments, which I love now, but I wasn't usually clean at the time. So, you know, if we are dancing to Kylie's Shocked in my tweeds on the floor of Tall Trees, and then so you'd come home with this like absolutely pounding rhythms in your head, so you'd had four hours of boo, boo, would come home and think, right. I just. do you know what, I'm going to have a cold drink I'm going to have a can of coke out of the fridge I'm going to put the telly on what's on that will soothe me and it would invariably be the hitman and her (laughs) (laughs) the only thing that you'd find it was exactly the same songs that you'd had drilled into your skull for the previous four hours would be on television and not only that, the man that actually produced all of those bloody songs was on there as well going behave
0: (laughs) Okay, well here's another of the possibly the most convoluted links I've ever done, which is, you know, I talk about my love of post-pub TV, of late-night TV, late-night weirdness in general. There was a rumour at one point, which still hasn't been definitively denounced or established one way or the other, that a certain programme about an unruly school was given an unlisted showing in one region very late at night. Never got to the bottom of that. That was the only thing you could think of as a clip to introduce your next choice, so here's some theme music that's got nothing to do with what we're going to talk about. Hey, for once, I'm not talking about Hardwick House.
1: <laughs> Bob, what were school folk songs? <laughs> Right, Okay. picture the scene. It is the last day of term uh, in my primary school, Levendale Primary School in the small northeastern town of Yarm. We are on the school bus. It's going to be about 25 past three on the school bus coming home. And the bus is alive with the sound of song because every child on that bus is singing this. And I remember it word for word. We break up. We break down. We don't care if the school falls down. No more English. No more French, no more sitting on the old school bench If the teacher interferes, tie her up and box her ears If that does not shut her up, dynamite will blow her up I have no idea where that song came from I do not recall anybody ever sitting down at my school and writing the words I do not recall anybody ever sitting down and teaching me the words Or indeed anybody else We just seem to know it This is an oral tradition of songs that were only sung in schools and in school playgrounds and on school buses. I have tried so much to find out the history of that song, where it came from. The curious thing is it wasn't even particularly relevant to our school because our primary school here, we certainly didn't have an old school bench. We sat on little plastic chairs. We didn't learn French. And yet this had clearly been passed down through generations and generations. I had a little look around the internet. All that I could find was that it certainly wasn't a side thing. This song was sung in schools all over the country with a few different regional variations. At some point, somebody has sat down and written this song, we assume. At some point, it <laughs> must Pete have Waterman, done, you know. I'd <laughs> <laughs> like to think it was Pete Waterman. Or, or was it Pop Husband? Yeah. Maybe it was, Pop Husband. I don't know. You have to assume somebody at some point sat down with a piece of paper and a pen and wrote this song in a school somewhere God knows how long ago, but it's become part of folklore. You know, I'm really interested in folk music. It's one of my things and in traditional folk music and in the way that, you know, these songs, traditional folk songs, weren't written down for centuries. They were just passed down. People knew them, people sang them, people taught them to each other, but it was only in the 20th century uh really when people like Burt Lloyd travelled around the country and started actively collecting them and saying to old, you know, to old farmers and people that had upheld folk traditions can you sing me the songs that you've been taught because you know like to like to write them down like to record them i mean so you know some of the lyrics have been recorded in centuries gone by but people didn't know the tunes the melodies weren't recorded so there's this lovely air of kind of vagueness about traditional folk music and and i think school songs fall into that category as well and don't get the recognition for it. And I think it's about I think it's about time they did <laughs> and we are addressing the balance here. Well,
0: it's true that nobody knows the provenance of these things. Or in some cases no. the meanings because the one that really still I remember singing this for Hours and hours on the loop, on school trips, on, well, on buses, which have become relevant in a minute. I sang along with it happily at the time. It was only years later I thought, what on earth did that even mean? Which hmm. was, I'm going to have to go into my real accent for this. Basically, it was for He's a Johnny fellow," which proceeded as yeah. normal for most of the song apart from And so say all of us, and so say all of us, he nearly wrecked the bus what?
1: <laughs> what is that even about? No, it is amazing. I said Again, So somebody at some point thought, oh, that's really funny. I'll start singing that. It caught on. Other kids sang what, it. He nearly um, the wrecked the was... bus as well. Look, d- yeah, nearly. Nearly. nearly well, on did he or didn't he wreck the bus? Let's <laughs> pin this down. <laughs> How far into the bus wreckage did he actually get? <laughs> Can I sing you another one? Well, this I, is, say, uh, I
0: have to say that I don't like doing my hometown down, but by the standards of buses in Liverpool and the early 80s there would have to be some serious wrecking <laughs> we'd already done enough damage ourselves
1: oh that's a yes or oh, not that much work required just finish I'm the, the inebri- job just, just finish, finish please it
0: please mind your head sign rearrange the fleas in your head <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, this is... I can sing you another one here. This, right, even by the standards of looks unfamiliar, this is a little ripe. This is rude. And I'm aware that I have dragged this podcast down into the the realms of the gutter on this particular occasion. I have introduced language fit only for the confines of the billiard parlour. But even by my standards, we are the lads of the Durex mob and you can't get a better bit of rubber on your knob. It's creamy and thick and it sticks to your dick. And you can't get it off in the morning. See, I
0: remember that, but with <laughs> Do you with two lines transposed one replaced with like Evo stick, so Ah appetizing wow. you see, so that was the problem.
1: <laughs> what was the variation on Jesus Christ superstar in your school?
0: Came round the corner on his Yamaha, pulled yeah. a skid, killed a kid. Yeah went yep. head first in
1: a dustbin lid. Ah, now you see in my school, he didn't go head first into a dustbin lid. He knackered in his balls on a dustbin lid.
0: That's not part of the Bible
1: story. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I don't think the Yamaha is part of the Bible story. He could have just made up. If we're looking for theological accuracy here, I think we're on a loser from the start. But isn't it like, genuinely fascinating how there are regional variations in these things? And again, that's quite like folk story and it's like folklore. You know, there there are stories all over the country about, for example, you know, folk stories about a dangerous and malevolent dragon that is terrorising a small village and an errant knight comes along and slays the dragon and is rewarded with stewardship of the village in perpetuity. That is a story that exists all over the UK and indeed all over Europe with lots of variations but the story is essentially the same and I think these songs act in exactly the same way. They have spread all over the country, probably beyond the country and each different set of kids in different parts of the country put their own spin on these stories these songs depending on on the on the particular social mores of their school I just wanted to chuck another one in here because I've got to say thank you so much too now this uh, it was it was uh, Molly Molly James on Twitter who I think we we both speak with quite a bit on Twitter who quoted uh, she drew this to my attention but it was quoted by a writer called Adrian Bott on Twitter and this dates from I think he said it's from the 1940s at least and this is this isn't a song this is like a stock riposte to an insult and it was, it was schoolgirls in particular, so imagine a 1940s schoolgirl has been insulted in the playground in some juvenile fashion, and she would reply with this learned reply. Are you insinuating that I should tolerate such diabolical insolence from an inferior like you? Your intellect is not sufficiently developed to comprehend the verbosity of my remarks. If it were not for taking off my gloves and showing my diamond ring to the atmosphere, I would slap your saucy face. And that was apparently learnt by schoolgirls in the 1940s as a kind of stock retort to anybody insulting them. It's hard um, so... you
0: are awful, but I like you, is it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> You've got to put the hours in, I think, with that one. But yeah, I, I just think it's fascinating that these things exist, that they've... Evolved over the decades, if not centuries, and I would love to know a little bit more about the origins of some of them. Let's assume that Ralph Halpern sang a song about doing it five times a night, powered <laughs> by sunflower seeds in his school playground. I mean, obviously, Frente would have covered that in the Bayside Diner of Home and Away, much to the chagrin of Alf Stewart, who would have called them Flaming Galars and Yang Hoons. Uh, the two, I mean, the two Roddies were built to do saucy playground songs, weren't they? With the rum tiddly on um, papa. Uh, it would have been. I know, to, some of these songs are probably quoted verbatim in rude food <laughs> next to a picture of a woman licking the end of a banana in a rather saucy fashion. Sugs on Saturday. I mean, let's not let's not have it be on the realms of possibility that the fall covered some of these saucy. I mean, who would have known if the fall had done it or not? You couldn't understand the word he was singing half the time. Just do it to an industrial backbeat and stick it on Sugs on Saturday, I, I and imagine. nobody would know the difference.
0: <laughs> we break down the We're school falls down ah!
1: <laughs> <laughs> <And> that, <laughs> that's that even
0: worse up. than my real accent <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Mark Riley would have played the bass on it so <laughs> there you go, it all ties together somewhere
0: <laughs> I don't know what to say after that Bob, it's been brilliant, thank you
1: a total pleasure, thank you for indulging me Tim
0: Top of the box The complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes, from The Themes of the Sixth Wife of Henry VIII to Awesome Doom by Ed The Duck. More details at timwervington.org.